0: Hey, I'm Tim. I get the honour of bringing you the Bible reading this morning, or part of it. This is from Isaiah chapter 36, and I'll be reading through to Isaiah 37:13. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lashish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall." But the Rabshakeh said, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephavaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, Do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, And Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress of rebuke and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Terhaka, the king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my father destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden, who were in Telassar, where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Eva?
1: So to the end of the chapter. Hezekiah received the letter, and from the hand of the messengers, and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, You alone, of all the kingdoms of all the earth. You have made the heaven and the earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your ears, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sh- Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria has laid waste to all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not go- no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos said to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, this is the word of the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you, she scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel by your servants you have mocked the Lord and you have said, with my many chariots, I've gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars and its choice cypresses, to come to its remotest heights, its most fruitful forests. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I've determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you shall make fortified cities "'crash into heaps of ruins, "'while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, "'are dismayed and confounded, "'and have become like plants of the field "'and are like tender grass, "'like grass on the housetops, blighted before it's grown. "'I know you're sitting down, "'and I know you're going out, "'and you're coming in, "'and you're raging against me, "'because you have raged against me, "'and your complacency has come to my ears. "'I will put my hook in your nose "'and my bit in your mouth, "'and I will turn you back on the way by which you came.' And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go the remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, to declares the Lord. For I will defend the city to save it, for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold... These were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. Nineveh, And he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch. His god, Adrabelech, and Sharazah, his sons, struck him down with their sword. And after they escaped and went into the land of Ararat, Escahaddon, his son, reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, uh, we praise you for your word. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would speak that word uh, to us this morning. Uh, Speak to our hearts, we pray, and give us open ears and soft hearts that are ready to believe the word you've spoken. Amen. We're going to plant ourselves there in that passage, uh, and we're going to be thinking about this question this morning. What do you do when life threatens to overwhelm you? When it throws you a curveball, and chaos and uncertainty strike, what do you do? Maybe you try to Marie Kondo it. Uh, You know Marie Kondo? uh, She wrote a book some years ago, Wikipedia tells me, about how to organise things, right? Organise your house. And now there's a Netflix series, which I haven't seen, where she goes into people's houses, apparently, and tells them how to get organised. And the key to her method is to audit your possessions, one category at a time. Um, And you ask of each thing, does this spark joy? And if it doesn't, you chuck it out. Basic idea, right? Seize control of whatever you can in life when it threatens to overwhelm you, even if you have to be ruthless and chuck out all this stuff you've spent heaps of money on. Uh, There are equivalents in other areas of life, at work, uh, in managing online interactions, And there's kind of wisdom to this method, right? Break down the chaos into manageable chunks and action in line with your priorities or your joy. But the ruthlessness that's kind of harmless when it comes to socks and Tupperware uh, can have some kind of nasty side effects in other places, right? Uh, I know people who do a sort of semi-regular Marie Kondo audit of their Facebook friends. Does this friend spark joy? No delete. It's nice to know that I'm still there when they let us know that they've done it. So maybe that's what you do when life threatens to overwhelm you. Get kind of organized, take control of what you can, like Marie Kondo. Or maybe you go to the other extreme and kind of just throw up your hands and give in to despair. You just let it all crash over you and suck you down kind of tumble you head over heels and dump like a dumping wave in the surf, kind of bashing you against the sandy bottom. Maybe all, maybe all you can do is hope that somehow you'll be able to work out which way is up and you'll be able to get up for another breath before the next thing crashes into you. Uh, this summer, my daughter, Abigail, uh, has been learning to swim. And she's pretty bold and always confident. Uh, and she brings that to the water. Uh, she'll literally jump right in, whether or not you're ready, whether or not she's ready, whether or not she's finished talking. Uh, she usually has a sort of flotation aid on uh, to help curb some of the worst excesses of that enthusiasm and confidence. But a few weekends ago, we were in a pool, and I had forgotten to pack the flotation thing. So she was jumping in unassisted. And, and for like 30 minutes straight, this is how it went, on repeat. Uh, stand at the edge of the pool, Talking jump in, get a mouthful of water, uh, kick like crazy, keep your head above water for about 15 seconds, and then go under, and then repeat. And some, I think that's kind of many of us, isn't it? In the face of the chaos and uncertainty of life, we sort of swing back and forth between the extremes. Frantic effort, Marie Kondo style, and getting pulled under. I don't know how your summers felt, uh, whether you felt overwhelmed. Sometimes the kind of endless parties and barbecues and social engagements with family and friends and work colleagues can be overwhelming. There's this sort of expectation, right, that you turn up, you're seen, you smile, you put on a brave face, you talk about how great the year ahead's going to be, but it can be deeply threatening. Or perhaps uh, you couldn't have avoided work in the last little while. Everyone else has stopped, but you can't afford to. Maybe you're trying to squeeze it in around the edges of looking after kids who are bereft of school or childcare, and maybe you feel that to be overwhelming. Any one of these things can be kind of overwhelming by itself, but you sort of chuck them all together in summer and add in the sort of usual tragedies that seem to cluster around this time of year, the freak accidents. and it can really be like one wave after another. It may be that you're here this morning and uh, don't consider yourself a Christian, or maybe you're a Christian and you're struggling right now, and maybe this is part of why. Maybe this is one of your key questions, given what life can be like. Does Christianity have anything to say? Do the Bible and prayer really work? Does faith have any resources to help you face life as it overwhelms you? And that's where this passage from Isaiah, the long reading that our readers did a great job with, that's that's where this passage comes in. uh, Because it gives us, I think, some vital resources for dealing with life when it threatens to overwhelm us. These chapters are really pivotal in the book of Isaiah. Uh, They give us the sort of historical events, the true things that happened at the core of that big, long book of prophecy. But they're also the sort of thematic center. They're the heart of the book's message, where we hear the good news, according to Isaiah. Because in these passages, God holds up for us the spiritual equivalent of what my daughter did in that pool the other weekend every time her head went under the water she reached out for me like a reflex action she put her trust in me and leaned on me grabbing and reaching out for the only person who was not only able to help but was right there ready to do it and like my daughter in that pool Isaiah here shows us King Hezekiah with the waters about to close in and he reaches out for God and finds him ready and able to help. So have a look with me. Isaiah 36 opens by setting the scene. Uh, The people of God and Hezekiah, their king, have a serious problem, verses 1 to 3. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, that's the kind of commander of the army, sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. Now, so all this is happening around the years sort of 700 BC. Uh, it's well after all the big ticket items of the Old Testament, names you might have heard, Abraham, Moses and the parting of the Red Sea, uh, David, Solomon. These guys are all distant memories. And things have gone downhill since their time. For starters, the nation of God's people has been divided. Uh, Ten tribes, formed, they formed the nation of Israel in the north, and the two leftover tribes became Judah in the south, where Jerusalem is. Uh, it's a bit like, if you can imagine, Australia divided Right, and all the states, except Victoria and Tasmania, decided they're going to be their own thing and they're going to call themselves Australia because they're like that. Right, and they leave us to be the union of southern socialist republics or something. <laughs> and so things have got bad. But worse than that, the previous king of Judah, the southern kingdom, King Ahaz, who's Hezekiah's dad, he's cut a deal with the Assyrians... He formed an alliance with them in order to repel an invasion from the north. Uh, But this deal had turned Judah into what's known as a vassal state. Uh, A vassal state regularly sends tribute. And so so Judah was sending tribute, money and treasure. uh, And they'd also had to take the gods of Assyria and put the idols into their own land, all their religious places. Because that's what it is to be a vassal. You give your wealth and your worship your resources and your heart in exchange for safety. Uh, fast forward to immediately before the events of Isaiah 36 and things have become even more tense uh, because the new Assyria has got a new king uh, and in that process, it's kind of a messy sort of process. Lots of people get killed uh, and King Hezekiah has seized the opportunity to stop paying tribute and he's got rid of all the idols from Assyria and he sought an alliance with Egypt. you see what's happening? They are a vassal. They send their wealth and they take their worship. And he's gone, no, this looks like a good opportunity. We're going to stop. And predictably, the new king of Assyria, once he gets his act together, Sennacherib, he's not very happy about this. He leads an army against Judah and captures all the fortified cities. And now the Assyrian army is right outside the gates of Jerusalem. More precisely, they're on top of the city's water supply, which kind of adds weight to that taunt that the Rabshakeh makes a little later about what the city's inhabitants will be drinking before long. And so Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sends this message for Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem, a message that the Rabshakeh delivers, which you see there in verses 4 to 10, really highlights two things That God's people are trusting, but he thinks they shouldn't be trusting. First, he says, You're trusting your military alliance with Egypt. And Sennacherib says, But the problem is Egypt is a splintered reed, Uh, it will just hurt you if you lean on it. Second, he says, You're trusting your God, the Lord, Yahweh. And according to the king of Assyria, that's a bad idea because Hezekiah has abolished the places of worship. He's got rid of the high places. He's got rid of the idols. And so Sennacherib mocks Judah. You heard there the deal he made, the wager he offered. He said, I could give you thousands of horses and I'd still crush you. Egypt won't help you. The God you claim to rely on, well, Hezekiah has made him angry. And he sent me to destroy you. And so there's some back and forth in about the language the negotiation should be conducted. It's kind of meant to be a bit humorous. Uh, and the Assyrian field commander shouts in the language that everyone can understand. And what he shouts could have been scripted on the Gruen transfer. You know, you know the Gruen transfer, right? About advertising. This, this is a perfect piece of advertising. It's a, a deft mix of half-truths and lies that claims to solve a problem that it itself has created. Sorry if there's any advertisers in the room. That's just what the Gruen transfer tells me it's all about. And so, so he cr- has created a problem. The army has arrived. They're up to their neck. And the problem is well, Hezekiah's telling you that God can save you, but he's deluded. God will not save Jerusalem. And what's his solution, the, the mixture of half truths and lies? Well, he says if you surrender now, I'll let you live, and then I'll take you into exile. Now, and do it now, otherwise I'm going to destroy you like I've done every other place. Their gods couldn't save them, and yours won't either. So you can sort of hear what's going on, right? Sennacherib is offering God's people an alternative vision for finding peace and stability, comfort and safety. He's saying, trust me, not God, and you'll be safe. And this is often the way with kind of empires like, Sennacherib's, or even less political kind of empires and powers. They offer you safety in exchange for your tribute and your worship, your resources and your heart. It's not like Sennacherib's offer has nothing to it either. It's got enough truth to make it plausible. It's half-truths, right? The Assyrian Empire, history tells us, did expand and crush all opposition for three centuries. And the list of nations that the field commander reels off, these were nations that were overwhelmed. They were crushed by the Assyrian war machine. And the policy of taking people off into exile, sort of forced relocation, it actually did kind of work. It did a pretty good job of making a stable and safe empire with some degree of prosperity. It kind of made everything like an airport. You know, been to an airport recently. It's all these different people from different places, but there's like, it's all really rigorously kind of managed. And and none of the differences matter. Like, people could be from anywhere. The people who are kind of doing the security screening treat you all with about the same level of disdain, no matter where you're from. It kind of worked in, in the Empire. Mix people up from all different places and you get something like stability, where people don't care too much about where they're from. So there's some truth to this offer that he makes. But Sennacherib overreaches. He's kind of intoxicated by his success, and he thinks, I'm unstoppable. I've got God's backing, and I need absolute allegiance. He thinks that everyone has to bow before him, and he fails to reckon with the reality that God, the true and living God, has the superior claim. It's worth pausing to reflect. Now, where in, you, in your life do you experience this kind of tug? What is it that you look to f- for safety, even if it demands your tribute and your worship? I'm not sure what it is for you. But for me it's the predictability of order and routine. School holidays are my personal nightmare. Thank the Lord that school went back this week. Right? I I am in my happy place when I'm putting together lunch boxes, unstacking and restacking the dishwasher, planning the menu for the week, updating the shopping list, getting everything in place. Right? I'm the robot and I'm hit for six when I'm thwarted in my efforts. Uh, Whether it's having to leave several tasks unfinished and and the water in the sink kind of rapidly cooling to go and break up a fight in another room, or whether it's discovering that the the carefully stewarded last four pieces of bread for the sandwiches have been eaten by some unwitting family member. My emotions just spiral out of control. Right, My routine is thrown. And this suggests that I'm making a good thing because, look, order and routine's good. When it's working, our household, it works. But when it gets out of control, that suggests that I'm making a good thing into an ultimate thing. I'm looking to it to deliver comfort and safety and stability in my life to protect me against the chaos. Ridiculous as that sounds. And my hunch is that we all have these kind of things. Things that are good servants, but terrible, enslaving masters. And so in Isaiah, Sennacherib's taunts and boasts and half-credible offers of safety, these provide the emotional backdrop for Hezekiah's response, which we see him make in chapter 37. After his delegates relay the message to him, we see him make his first response. Uh, The first response in Isaiah 37 verses 1 to 4 is sound in instinct, but tentative in execution. You see there, Hezekiah tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth. That's the traditional attire of repentance and grief. And he goes into the house of the Lord, the temple. He, He turns to God. Solid instinct, Hezekiah. He's got the right idea. And not content to enter the symbolic presence of God, Hezekiah also seeks out the word of God. He wants God's prophet to tell him what to do. Again, solid move, right? He's got the right idea, the right instinct. Uh, He sends his delegates to inquire of Isaiah. But did you notice in verses 3 and 4 how sort of hesitant his language was? He talks about your God, not my God. And he sort of hedges. It may be that the Lord your God will hear and that he'll rebuke the Rabshakeh and, and the Assyrian army. Tentative, right? Hesitant. How often do your prayers have that kind of undertone? I don't know that mine do. There's a due place, of course, for respect and, and caution. God, God is sovereign. but it's way too easy to to theologize and qualify our prayers out of existence. Far more appropriate, biblically, is an attitude of what one early church theologian called pious impudence. Kind of asking too much, going too far in expecting. Knowing that God remains sovereign, it's pious. But not just fearfully hedging everything. Oh, God, maybe... Not really, don't want to ask too much. So Hezekiah's initial response is right in principle, he turns to God, but inadequate in execution. He's kind of like that man in the Gospels who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's this mixture, which I suspect is all of us to one extent or another, isn't it? But Isaiah then sends a word of encouragement back to Hezekiah. In verse six he says, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words you've heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumour and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And the prophet's words get gets a bit of immediate confirmation. The Assyrian army withdraws, because they hear this message that they've got enemies to fight on other fronts. But as they withdraw, they send another taunting message to King Hezekiah. And Sennacherib repeats his call to stop trusting God, and he footnotes, here's all the evidence of places I've destroyed, even though they were trusting in their gods. And so Hezekiah now has Isaiah's word, the word from God, and a demonstration of God's authority. And in the other hand, he has this letter from the king of Assyria, Sennacherib brief and brutal and so hezekiah makes a second and fuller response Uh, this time notice he approaches god far more personally and with a depth of faith that's miles away from his first attempt have a look with me verse 14 hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it and hezekiah went up to the house of the lord and spread it out before the lord that's a beautiful image of trust, isn't it? That's the spiritual equivalent of my daughter reaching out for me by reflex. Confident that I'd pull her back up. He, just, he spreads it out before the Lord. The king of Assyria is making boasts and taunts and saying, you're stuffed. And he says, well, God, this one's for you. And then he prays to the Lord. Hezekiah prayed, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the, are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods but the work of men's hands wood and stone therefore they were destroyed so now o lord our god save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the lord i love how hezekiah addresses god here he is the lord almighty the lord of hosts jerusalem surrounded by an army but god has hosts armies and armies ranks and ranks Standing at his command. And Hezekiah also sees and confesses that the God who's bound himself to this people, this little city, Jerusalem, that this God alone is God over all the kingdoms of the earth. He's not a tribal deity, he doesn't have kind of limited jurisdiction. God is the legitimate and sole ruler of all, he made heaven and earth. And the prayer of Hezekiah's prayer, the thing he asks for, that's also worth paying attention to. Notice what he doesn't ask for, first of all. He doesn't ask for help. So often we pray to God for help. Help us, Lord. Help me do such and such. And that's not wrong, right? God does help his people. He loves to. But what's so wonderful about Hezekiah's prayer is that he asks God to act not to help him act. He says, God, give ear and hear. Open your eyes and see, listen, and save us. Do something. God's action and agenda are in the spotlight in Hezekiah's prayer, as is God's reputation and glory. Hezekiah knows that he's come to the end of himself. He can't kick any harder any longer. And so he begs God to do what only God can do, to rescue his people. And rescuing is what God promises to do in that long poetic oracle that Isaiah speaks. And rescuing is what God does dramatically in verses 36 to 38. Let's have a look again. The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all the dead bodies. Gruesome. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of of Nisroch, his god, Adrammelech and Charizah, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after that, they escaped into the land of Ararat. As his son, reigned in his place. God comes through powerfully so let's draw the threads together what resources does this passage of scripture provide us for dealing with life as it threatens to overwhelm us well fundamentally I think it teaches us to cultivate a relationship with God in which we reach out to him as a reflex action not to redouble our own efforts or just give up and let the water close over us. Isaiah 36 and 37 challenges you about the nature of your relationship with God because that's going to be the key to you dealing with the curveballs that life throws at you. That'll be the thing that gives your life ballast, like in a boat, right? So when the storms come and the waves roll in, you won't be easily capsized. Isaiah asks us, he asks you, is your relationship with God intimate and confident? Or are you more inclined to hedge and hesitate? And he also asks, is your relationship with God full of awe at his majesty and uniqueness, his holiness? Does he occupy the spotlight? Or is he just there to provide you some kind of divine performance enhancement? Now, anyone with any experience of these things knows that a sense of intimacy and awe in relationship with God, the thing Isaiah calls us to cultivate with, we know that something that waxes and wanes, it has seasons. And if you're anything like me, then uh, probably far more often you're like, Hezekiah in his first response rather than in his second. Hesitant and tentative. Far too frequently we we listen to those half-truths and lies, don't we? Those good things that we allow to become ultimate things. We let them hamstring our prayers, draining our confidence that God can rescue that he wants to rescue, that he's ready right there. But, but the good news, the gospel according to Isaiah is that God is merciful. He's merciful to Hezekiah, right? He, he responds to Hezekiah's first prayer, inadequate as it is. He steps in. He sends a word of comfort. He provides. The unique Majestic Sovereign and holy God Rescues his people He steps in where We're weak And desperate He comes to us Becomes one of us Emmanuel God with us And as Isaiah only ever glimpsed Emmanuel is no metaphor. The God who made heaven and earth moves heaven and earth to be with his people. To be one of us. Vulnerable. And dependent. He doesn't just do this in his birth like we celebrate at Christmas, but but in his ministry. You know, Jesus' ministry is full of awe and and inspires people just how authoritative he is, how intimate his relationship with the Father. And in all of that, Jesus perfectly depended on God. He had to. Now, when he confronted the devil in the wilderness early in his ministry, Jesus resisted Satan's half-truths and lies by leaning on God's word not putting God to the test. He reached out and trusted in his father. And he did the same and and more climactically on the cross. That moment when the world arrayed in all its satanic might had him up to the neck. On the cross... Jesus did what Hezekiah only barely and fleetingly managed to do and what we never consistently do. He trusted his father. He leaned on him. And he did it to win for you and me an unparalleled intimacy with God. Because you know what? Hezekiah's prayer that addresses God with such power doesn't even scratch the surface of what Jesus offers you and me that we can call God father, dad that's intimacy and on the cross Jesus made us safe in his almighty power if you trust in Jesus you are eternally unassailably safe no matter what life throws at you. And to the extent that that gets into you, that that the gospel of Isaiah, the gift of God in allowing the dark waters of death to swallow him in our place, to the extent that that sinks into your heart and sounds loud in your ears above all the lies and half-truths that we're too inclined to believe, to the extent that it does this, you'll find peace, stability, ballast. You'll be safe in a growing intimacy with God, an awe-filled expectation that he can and will rescue far beyond what we can ask or imagine. Let me pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you are the holy God majestic and sovereign and yet full of mercy and compassion that you have mercy on us weak and tentative half-hearted as we often are we thank you that you came that you sent the Lord Jesus and that in him and through his work you won for us safety in a close and intimate relationship with you. We pray that this would be the thing that gives us ballast, that secures us against all that life throws against us. And we pray this for your glory and our good. Amen.